Hello, and welcome back to The Freelancer Show. I'm Ruben Lerner, and I'm here with another solo episode. I'm recording this in the late summer of 2019, and uh, this summer we've had a whole lot of traveling among the panelists on the show. So as you can tell, we've had a whole bunch of solo episodes, and well, this is yet another one. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And this week, I want to talk to you about two different business strategies you should consider in your freelancing career, uh, the B2B strategy and the B2C strategy. And you should basically have this in mind from the beginning, um, and it should help to drive you toward, well, just about every decision you make. Um, and so I want to talk about what is B2B, what is B2C, what are the advantages, the disadvantages of each one, um, can you combine them, what sort of crossover there might be, and uh, sort of the good and the bad. And of course, I'll mix in a whole lot of stories from my experiences as well. So let's start off with some definitions. Um, so B2B is short for business to business. And that means basically your clients, your customers are not going to be individuals, rather they're going to be companies. So you probably talk to people all the time who work at B2B companies, right? So, um, you know, a big computer company I can think of that uh, is a, like a B2B is sort of a Cisco or Ericsson, somewhere like that, where you aren't probably as an individual not going to be buying Cisco equipment or Ericsson equipment, but your phone company will be, your networking company will be, or something along those lines. So B2B companies um, sell to other businesses and often they're behind the scenes. Right. Often when I talk to people and I ask them where they work or what they do, and they tell me that they work in something that it's so obvious it has to exist, but I've never had direct contact with that kind of company. Right. You can think of a, a supermarket maybe selling to you, but who is delivering the groceries to the supermarket? Who is distributing it? Well, there's a distributor and that's a B2B sort of company. So you can be a B2B company. And I'll talk about that in just a little bit and what it means and so forth. But they're also then B2C companies, business to consumer companies, where the idea is that you actually want to reach out to individual people. Now, of course, people tend to work in companies or companies tend to be staffed by people. Although, you know, some companies you might wonder, given the intelligent or lack of intelligent decisions that they make. But we will assume the companies are staffed with people. That said, B2C means individual consumers, that your target market is not going to be companies, your target market is not going to be corporations, rather your target market is going to be individuals, uh, perhaps individual people in a corporation, but at the end of the day, you're really uh, selling to individuals. So, you know, some good, uh, uh, so to speak, classic examples that might be, uh, you know, Coca-Cola, right? They're not selling to companies so much, they are selling to individuals, although I believe they have a large bottling business, and that would be a B2B business. Uh, you know, car companies are typically going to be B2C, 
So when you see something advertised, almost certainly it's a B2C sort of thing. It's advertised on television or in a newspaper or magazine. Those of you old enough to remember what newspapers and magazines used to be. Uh, web ads are typically going to be B2C. Um, so you're going to need to, when you set up your freelancing business and over the time of your freelancing business, decide, am I more of a B2B kind of person or a B2C kind of person? Now, most people, when they think of consulting, are actually thinking in the B2B area. What do I mean by that? I mean, let's say you're a web developer, right? Classic sort of example. Um, you're not probably going to be selling your web development skills to individuals. Rather, you're going to be providing it to businesses. So you'll set up an e-commerce site for such and such a store. You will do a design for such and such an agency. You will run an agency that businesses come to to set up websites or set up web applications. You will provide these services to government organizations, to nonprofits. And just in those examples, you can see that B2B does not necessarily mean business. It could mean government, it could be nonprofits, but B2B is sort of how we think about it. Um, and so I think most freelancers think about B2B as their main business, and that's not a bad thing. Um, B2B businesses have a lot of advantages going for them. First of all, it's a sort of established safe way to go or safer way to go, because especially if you're doing something like web development or web design or SEO or something like that, right? These are things that businesses need all the time. They're always looking for people who can do it better, faster, maybe even cheaper uh, than they were getting before. And they're on the lookout for agencies that can provide that. In my own sort of work day to day, so I do training and I do a lot of training for large companies like Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. And so they are looking for training companies and the training company can be as small as one person like me or can be a large organization that has a lot of trainers on call. Either way, I am providing B2B services. My business is providing a, a service to another business and they know that's the way the training world works. And so they're sort of expecting it and budgeting for it and you know, even in some, in some ways waiting to hear from training companies. So most of my work is also B2B. And so it's a sort of easier, more natural way to go for many things. So this raises, of course, all sorts of questions. One is, how do you find clients? And that is like the oldest, hardest question that people ask me and that we try to answer on this show as much as possible. And of course, at the end of the day, there's no one answer to that question. There are many, many answers to that question. There are people who are very successful at doing outreach, meaning you email someone at a company and say, hey, I offer this service. I think you could use this service. What do you think? By the way, send that kind of email. It almost certainly won't work. You want to take it much more slowly than that. You want to be much more gentle than that. Um, a trick that I learned from uh, Lister Witherell, who has been on the show uh, and who has a lot of great advice about sales, is don't say, this is what I do. Are you interested in buying? Because like, who are you, right? You're just emailing them. That might be seen as spam. Instead, you can ask the question, are you the right person to talk to about this kind of service? Um, and that at least gives them the opportunity to open up in a conversation. By the way, they probably won't respond. You will need to follow up. And following up and persistence are the keys to actually getting a response. And most responses will be negative. Does that sound like a ton of work? It is. And so I, truth be told, have not done very much of that. I prefer for my clients to find me. Now, I know everyone's like, oh, of course you want your clients to find you. That's the best way to go. So how do you do that? You speak at conferences. 
You go online, you have newsletters, you have blogs, and I'll talk more about sort of how you can get different clients from different places. Um, but over time, over time, and it is a time thing, you must be prepared to give it time in many cases, years to build up enough of an authority so that when, in my case, when a company says, we are going to start using Python, we need Python training, someone will say, hey, the previous company I worked with had this guy Ruben do Python training, we should bring him in to do it. You want to get to that point. And in many ways, that has made my life so much easier because I don't really have to market to companies. They come to me, which is, I can tell you, a thousand times, 10,000 times easier than doing the outbound sort of marketing. That said, I'm still trying to break into new markets and I'm trying to break into new big companies and get my wares there. So I continue to try to send email to them. You know, Every few weeks, I will send a follow-up uh, until I get a no or a yes or a let's talk. And it's long and slow going. So if it is so hard to break into these companies and it is such an uphill battle, and if they have suppliers already, one company I was talking with already, uh, I was just in Beijing, China, giving a, a training. And I asked the training manager there to get me in touch with her counterpart in Silicon Valley. And she, she told me, listen, I've tried doing that, but they already have their own suppliers. They're not interested in having a new one. Okay, that's the way it is. You know, I, I can't do anything about it. She tried. Or you know what? Maybe she didn't try and she's just you know not being truthful. There's no way I can get around that, that sort of stonewall. And so I'll have to find someone else or try it myself or who knows what. So what is the advantage of trying all this B2B stuff? Why would you possibly do it? And the answer, of course, is money, right? That's often the answer when it comes to business stuff. Because at the end of the day, these businesses, not only do they pay very well um, or they can pay well, uh, whether it's for consulting or for training or for whatever it is, but they are going to have more than one shot in terms of their needs. So if you come in and fix their database and make it faster, you can be sure they are going to call you in and ask for additional database optimization work in the future. You are going to be their go-to person for doing this kind of work. Um, if you help them set up their cloud servers and they see that you do a great job on that, well, you know, there are many more cloud servers to be set up and many more optimizations to be done and many more setups to do and many more people to train on it and so on and so forth. And so once you get the foot, your foot in the door of a business in B2B, then you really have this incredible opportunity to get, basically keep working with them for years. Uh, there's a company, a Fortune 500 company I've been working with in Israel for, I don't know, at least three, four, five years now. Um, and basically they come to me and say, can we have three courses in November and December? Right, so, so they fill up my schedule, they pay on time, it couldn't be better, but getting in was hard. And how do I get in? How did I get in? It was through contacts. It was because they had seen one or two things that I'd done before. Uh, I had actually given a course there also through a training company previously when for a few years I did that. So they got to know me and then they called me in and they want me to keep going there. And you know, given that I'm doing training and I have a maximum of 16 people in my class each time, from their perspective, or I guess from my perspective, they have more or less an infinite number of courses that I can offer. So if I have three different courses I give at that company, so three courses for 16 people, and they have thousands of employees, I basically could be employed full-time they're giving my training. But of course, I'm not. I'm working at many companies. So the, the payoff with B2B is massive, but the sales cycle is long, long in terms of months or even a year. And when I first heard this, I was like, that's crazy. Since when would anyone talk about sales for something for a year? Who has that kind of patience? Who has that kind of interest? And the answer is big businesses do. 
One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show, where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. I recently wrote to my training mailing list about this, but uh, two companies approached me in the last year about doing training for them. It took, I'm not kidding, six months for the training to actually happen. And those six months passed after they had reached out to me. They had emailed me and said, we want you to do training for us. And just the negotiation over dates, the negotiation of the contract, the master service agreement, what's included, what's not included, what's the syllabus going to be, and so on and so forth. All of that just took a long, long time. And so you should expect the sales cycle to take at least that long. And that's if they reach out to you. If you're reaching out to them, I would say give it a year. This means you need to be thinking far, far, far in advance. And that's the sort of attitude you need for B2B. So um, how else can I, you know, can you get out to these B2B companies? How else can you get on their radar? Again, one way is to reach out to them. It's hard, it's long, it's difficult. My experience is that it's often best to get in front of one of the head technical people. Again, I'm doing Python training. So if I give a talk at a conference, what will typically happen is that one of the technical people there will come up to me and say, hey, I work at company XYZ. We could use some training. And I'll say, oh, that's great. How about we set up a conference call between you and me and your training manager, the director of training or whatever the, their title is at the company. And that, tr that conference call, the three-way call basically ensures that we're all on the same page. And the technical person bringing me in is very often, like that, that gets me sort, sort of in the door way more easily than would happen if I did it on my own, if I tried to do it on my own. So speaking at conferences, fantastic. Webinars, blog posts, not as good, but still possible. Um, and webinars and blog posts uh, are, are going to be great as well for just sort of building up credibility. That if a company says, hey, who is this person, right? Do, can I really trust them to come in and give us consulting? If you have a long list of talks you've given at big conferences, if you have a long list of blog posts you've done on the subject, that will sort of demonstrate to them, yeah, yeah, actually, like this person knows what they're talking about. So that's the B2B thing. Now, the other thing is B2B is going to be way, way, way more formal um, 
they're going to want you to they're going to want to sign you on all sorts of agreements and contracts. There will probably be what's called a master services agreement, which is a fancy way of saying overall contract. And then they'll have a statement of work, which is a fancy way of saying individual project contract. And what happens is like the MSA, the master service agreement says this is like a general agreement and we trust that you have the insurance we want and we trust that you're incorporated and we have all your bank information and so on and so forth. And the statement of work, the SOW is basically, oh yes, and you're going to give such and such a course or you're going to give us consulting and such and such. And so each time you do a new course, each time you do a new project, each time you give consulting, you'll have a new statement of work and that'll be against the, you know, the main master services agreement. All right, so that is the... Uh, that's the basic thing there with B2B. Um, the other thing is, like as I said, they're going to be much more formal. So they'll issue a purchase order. You'll need to be incorporated in some way. You'll need to get insurance. You'll need to just like have your ducks in a row there because they want to deal with a business. And a business has a certain set of expectations for what businesses they're working with. Also, they might just require it. Um, I mean, I go on and on about the craziness I've dealt with with insurance in trying to get into these companies, but their insurance companies require certain things from them and thus they will require it from you and so on and so forth, sort of like the insurance domino effect. So B2B is a great way to go in all sorts of different ways, but some people don't want to go that way and some people shouldn't go that way. Um, and so you can try also B2C. So what can you do in B2C? What sort of services can you as a freelancer offer to consumers? Well, of course, every day we deal with such people, right? So you've got gardeners, you've got plumbers, you've got electricians, and some of these people work B2B, but a lot of these people work B2C. If your you know, toilet is clogged, you're going to call a plumber and they're not going to start saying, wait, are you a business? No, no, like there's no master service agreement with your plumber. Just please come, <laughs> unclog my pipes and I will pay you for it. Um, so what sort of things can you do B2C? Uh, uh, as a freelancer, as a consultant? Well, a lot of these things are going to be info products. And info products is like a fancy way of saying an ebook or an online course. Um, but it can also be consulting. It can also be coaching, right? I do coaching uh, for people in Python and who want to do training. Um, uh, Jonathan Stark, who uh, you know used to be on the podcast quite a bit. So he does uh, sort of coaching for people who want to improve their sales and their pricing uh, and their authority in various areas. Um, you have all sorts of different people doing different products that are not aimed at a company, not aimed at a group, but rather aimed at an individual. You have people doing sales, you know, sales coaching as well. Uh, so you have all sorts of different kinds of things that you can be doing there. So the advantage, of course, is that there are a lot of people out there. And so I, I'm going to take you know, my example again of uh, you know, Python training and so forth. So I have a whole bunch of B2C offerings. I have a bunch of video courses. I have a few books that I've written. Um, you know, I do coaching, as I said. So I offer a bunch of B2C different things, uh, you know, various courses and books and coaching and so forth. Um, but each of those is going to get me a little bit of money at a time. Right? If I go into a company and I teach a course B2B, I'm going to get a lot of money all at once for that week. If I'm doing B2C, though, if I'm doing business to consumer, then each consumer is going to pay a little bit. Now, the little bit might be a few hundred dollars for like one of my top end courses, but it also could be as little as I think my lowest course is $80 and you know, even less with like you know, discounts and so forth. So basically, you're not going to get a huge amount of money at once. And then the key thing is volume. Now, again, there are a lot of people out there. Right? If every single person on the planet Earth, was it like 8 billion people now, if they just bought my cheapest course, I would be very satisfied, more than satisfied. But of course, they're not going to. And how am I going to get to them? Well, that gets trickier 
Because unlike the B2B outreach where you're talking to a manager and there's one person who's like the centralized gatekeeper or one of the centralized gatekeepers at a company, in the case of B2C, you're trying to reach out to lots and lots and lots of individuals. And that in many ways will take more time, not time in the sense of it'll take a year like with the B2B, but it'll take more time because you're gonna have to spend time reaching out to such people, getting to them, not on an individual basis, not at all, but you're gonna have to put ads on Facebook or on LinkedIn or on Google. Um, you're gonna wanna put posts or maybe ads on your Twitter. You wanna put posts on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter. You're gonna wanna have blog posts. You're gonna wanna have things on YouTube. You're gonna wanna sort of flood the market as it were with lots lots of information about who you are, what you're doing, so that some percentage of the people who see you will then say, aha, what an authority, what an expert. I want to hire this person or actually I wanna buy their product. Um, so the idea is, of course, it's sort of like the reverse. With B2B, it's few clients who are paying you a lot. And with B2C, it's many clients who are paying you a little. And in the case of B2C, you sure sort of need to reach out to them so they will look at you. You cannot send individual messages. Aha, but you sort of can, of course. You can use a mailing list. And I remember it must have been five, six, seven years ago when I first heard people talk about mailing lists. Um, I think it was Patrick McKenzie. Uh, who talked about mailing lists a bit. And I was a little skeptical and I was like, yeah, 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 mailing list. What can you actually sell through this? And you know, Patrick McKenzie basically wrote, if you don't have a mailing list, start one today. It's never too late. Um, and it's never it's never too early and it's definitely never too, too late. And the longer you wait to do a mailing list, the longer you will regret it. Now, when I started my mailing list, I did it wrong. I think I might have told these stories a little bit before in the podcast, but they bear repeating. So, um, Basically, I started off using AWeber, which is sort of one of the oldest mailing list companies. If you're thinking mailing list, isn't that the sort of thing like you do with, you know, Listserv or something like that? Uh, Listserv is probably out of, out of fashion nowadays. I'm sure it is. It was out of fashion back when it was in fashion, truth be told. So basically, um, I started off with AWeber and I got a bunch of people on my mailing list. I think I had like 300, 400 people that I'd collected through like my blog posts and I did some webinars and so they signed up through there. And every two months, I would send a message to my mailing list. And I would start off by saying, oh, I'm so sorry I have not written in a while. Do not do this. Do not do this. Um, it's taken a few years. I now have a pretty well-oiled machine in terms of the mailing list. And what happens is this. So I use Drip. And I know there have been a lot of people unhappy with Drip recently, but I'm actually pretty happy with them still. Um, and Drip has this thing called a campaign. And a campaign means that it's a bunch of email messages, what some people would call a drip campaign, hence the name, right? And so a campaign says there are, let's say, five email messages here. And so when you subscribe to the campaign, you'll first get the first, then the second, then the third, then the fourth, then the fifth, and then that's it. Now, you can set the drip campaign to come out at certain intervals. So what I've done is I've set up my, what I call my better developers mailing list. That campaign only goes out on Monday. So Monday at 11 a.m., whatever time people are at, you know, in your own time zone, you will get my latest newsletter. Well, actually, that's a bit of a lie. You will get the next newsletter in sequence. So if you sign up today, and of course, your dear listener should be signing up today to see my mailing list and boosting my numbers. But if you sign up today, then the following Monday, you will get the first message, newsletter number one. And then you'll get the next Monday, newsletter number two. Then the next one, newsletter number three. Now, I think I'm now up to like 80 or 85, something like that. And I've gotten a little lazy and bad and overwhelmed in terms of writing the newsletters. So there are a few people who have not received in a month or so as of this recording. And I actually got an email from someone saying, hey, are you still writing the newsletter? So yeah, yes, I am. I'm just kind of you know, busy and overwhelmed. 
But the idea is that every week they will get something. Now this means the way that I created this in this evergreen fashion, as it's called, is I can do literally nothing, literally nothing. And anyone who signs up will get 80 weeks worth of content. So it's like what, a year and a half or so, almost two years worth of content every single Monday. That's fantastic. Now, why would I have this mailing list? Both so I can boost my authority and of course, so I can sell my products. And so in the footer of my messages, I mention my products that they can buy. And uh, every so often I send out what would some people call an email blast. Uh, Drip calls them a broadcast. And I send out a broadcast to everyone on my list saying, hey, I have this new product, you should buy it. So it sort of goes hand in hand. The people who are on your list, they're getting lots of free stuff. They're getting lots of free information. And you're going to make sure that they, uh, you know, that they're also going to get your advertisements. That's sort of the, the trade-off that they are making. They get your free information, then they get your advertisements. And sometimes people actually complain that they uh, have unsubscribed from my list and they didn't realize that unsubscribed them from everything, including the information. Like they, they unsubscribed from the ads or so they thought, but they also unsubscribed from the information and even sometimes from uh, uh, my commercial drip courses like Weekly Python Exercise. Back when we were starting up new shows, one of the shows that got started was Views on View. And one of the things that was really fun about that is that I got to know a bunch of really terrific people in the View community. And furthermore, one thing that happened that really hadn't happened on any of the other shows, we actually got a member of the core team to come on as a regular panelist on the show. We have Chris Fritz on there. The other thing is, is you may recognize some of the other voices. Ben Hong, who's on the official View News podcast, is also a panelist on the show. He's worked for Politico and now works for GitLab. We also have a bunch of other terrific panelists that come on and talk to you about what's going on in the Vue community. And because they're so closely tied to Vue and they talk to people about Vue all the time, they're very up-to-date and very knowledgeable about what's going on in the Vue community. So if you're looking for a way to learn Vue.js or if you're looking for a way to stay current with Vue.js and kind of have the water cooler conversations you wish you could have about it in places where maybe they're not using it, then definitely check it out. You can find it at viewsonview.com. So having a mailing list allows you to reach people, and that is the primary way and the best way people have to sell B2C. Now, does this mean there are no other ways? No, absolutely not. There are people who manage to get huge, huge, huge audiences on YouTube, and they sell on YouTube. I'm actually building up my YouTube channel. You should take a look at my YouTube channel, and um, you, know, you should subscribe, of course. And there, I have lot, not, not only lots of Python information, but I have videos saying, hey, there's a new cohort of weekly Python exercise starting, and that sort of thing. And so between the mailing list and YouTube and blog posts and everywhere else you can get your name out, what will happen is people will see you and then once they recognize you as an authority, then they will hopefully buy your products. By the way, it helps to have numerous products. I've definitely found over the years as I've added to my products, the ones that I have created, the more products I have, the more people buy and the more stuff people buy. People say, oh, you have X, but I, and I can also get Y. Wow, I'll buy X and Y. Uh, or after they buy X and Y, they'll email me sometimes and say, hey, when is Z coming out? And I'll say, well, Z is coming out next, next month. Fantastic. And as soon as it comes out, they buy it. So you get sort of groupies. And so the larger your mailing list and the larger your reach, even if the percentages stay the same, uh, the obviously the amount that you'll make from these products goes up. Now, when I first started up my mailing list, I was convinced, absolutely convinced, and I guess not first started up, but like when I finally got into this groove of having like a campaign, having the marketing broadcasts, I was convinced that people on my list would be like, wow, this Reuven guy is like the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, also, sliced bread is not so great, but fine, it's a good expression. In any event, you know, he's the best. We should invite him to come do training at our company. This was a complete pipe dream and nonsense. 
It turns out that people get on your mailing list as B2C customers, not B2B customers. And so there will be little, if any, crossover between the two. I've had a very small number of people from my list turn to me and say, hey, can you do training for us? I've had slightly, slightly better success doing my corporate training, encouraging people to sign up for my list, and then having people buy my courses from there. That has happened. It's not even close to enough for, to a full kind, for, for a full-time income. So you shouldn't bet on there being much crossover. And so part of the dilemma with B2B or B2C is each of them takes time and each of them requires different things, right? So the B2B is going to be following up and emailing lots of companies, figure out which companies are the right ones, figure out which is the right person in the company, figure out, like, does this company seem to have a budget for whatever you want to do? And then finally reaching out to them and then waiting for them and on and on. B2C, by contrast, is not a lot of reaching out to individuals. It's trying to produce content so that you will get people's attention, so they can get on your mailing list, so that when you write that to the mailing list on a regular basis, which I hope you'll do, then they will be enticed by your uh, um, products and they will buy them. So these are different kinds of activities, and you can spend a full-time career working on either of them. Um, as I said, I've tried to do both, and I do do both. Um, but each of them, I don't want to say he's a full-time job, but each of them takes time. And so I tend to neglect one in favor of the other. Um, so I've definitely found that my mailing list is like mostly B2C with a little bit of B2B, like a tiny, tiny, tiny smidgen of B2B. My YouTube channel is 100% B2C, and I'm actually using it as a way to build authority and uh, also uh, just sort of, you know, as I said, get my name out, also have people sign up for my mailing list. So every single YouTube video in the comments says, I also have a mailing list. You should sign up for that. How many people have come from there? I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't tell you, but I should be able to tell you that sort of thing. Um, similarly, I have some posts on Facebook. I post on LinkedIn. I post on Twitter. Not that much, but some. And I'm hoping that some people will then come to me based on that. And how many of them will then bring B2B stuff? Almost none. I, I, I'm just not expecting. If it happens, I'll be floored and delighted. But I'm just not expecting it to happen at any point because mailing lists are sort of B2C sorts of things. Now, maybe, just maybe, it's worth producing a newsletter for managers Right, so maybe I should be doing the like you know Python manager newsletter, and then that would be aimed at people who are decision makers, and then I can sort of figure out uh, who among them would be potentially good clients. Uh, I actually did something recently. I'm going to modify it a little bit thanks to Kai Kai Davis's uh, suggestions. But right now, when you sign up for my mailing list, you are asked to go to a survey, and the survey then lets you fill out some information about yourself, like your name and what country you're from and what company you're from. Why am I doing that? Because I want to know what companies are using Python. And so I've seen a list of companies now uh, that I have not had a chance to do it yet, but I will approach them and I will ask them, hey, I know that you use Python. Um, maybe I can uh, you know, come and give you some training, right? That sort of makes sense, right? Well, it's a nice theory. We will find out in the coming months uh, if it actually is worthwhile and if it actually works. So how can you decide which is going to be your best strategy, B2B or B2C? Well, you probably don't know at the beginning, but it's, I'm guessing, I'm just guessing B2B is going to be a better bet. Uh, I guess that's B2B, BB would be a better bet, right? Supposed to, anyway, I'm not even going to try to like make the joke there. Um, and why? Why do I say that? First of all, because it's fewer people to interact with. You can go and talk to them. Also, if you have colleagues and friends who work for these companies that are potential clients of yours, that's a nice it. That's a nice way to pull you in and have these sorts of conference calls to discuss potential uh, work there, potential training, potential consulting work. If you go the B2C route, then you're basically saying, I have this great product and I want people to buy it and I want them to give, them, give me money for it, even though they don't really know who I am. 
uh, Brennan Dunn, who's been on the show in the past, and hopefully you're all familiar with his work. I remember when I tried to do my first online Python course, people did not know who I was. I didn't have a big mailing list at all. All sorts of issues there. And yet, and yet, I tried to do a course that I think it was going to cost like $1,000 or something. And Brennan was so incredibly decent and charitable. And he said, that is going to be a, a, a tough one to pull off. Meaning, <laughs> the real meaning of that sentence is, you're nuts. <laughs> It'll never work. And if you do get it to work, then you're a genius, but don't expect it. Uh, and indeed, no one signed up for the course that I offered. And it was because who's going to go out of the blue, like from, from you know, uh, seeing things online? Oh, this guy, Ruven, is offering a course. I'll pay a thousand bucks for to, to, to take his course. No, they're not going to do that. They need to be sort of enticed. They need to buy smaller things and then some slightly larger things. And then they'll buy a bigger thing as well. So keeping the prices down on your products is easier. Anyway, that's just to say that B2C sales can be very complex. and They take time. Um, again, a different kind of time than B2B. But I would say as a general rule, if you're doing freelancing, you want to start in the B2B route. That said, if you're trying to sell courses, B2C might be an easier, better way to go just because if you're in the right niche, then that niche might be so uh, um, poorly served by the internet community that you could break in there and people will be starving for this sort of information. I just spoke to someone a few days ago who does um, you know, bioinformatics uh, um, uh, high-performance computing. Not a lot of people doing that, right? So if you become the expert in bioinformatics, high-performance computing, especially using cloud servers, you're not going to have a lot of competition. People will probably, I'd like to think, flock to that sort of course if it's online. Now, the pricing for B2C is typically going to be much lower than B2B, right? So you have to take that into consideration, but it also can take time and it can grow over time as well. Um, so that is basically what I have to say on the whole B2B versus B2C thing. Um, I'm just going to look through my list here of topics I might want to make. Um, I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll just make uh, one or two more uh, comments here. So as I said, it is possible that people on your mailing list might bring their company in. So like you can go from B2C to B2B, but again, don't bet on it. The other way can happen. Um, and I mentioned already that maybe some, like in my training, sometimes individuals will buy my uh, online training. And I, again, I wouldn't bet on it for so much. Also, but, but sort of similarly, you can have your corporate clients buy your info products. And then your info products become not just B2C, also B2B. So I've had a few companies now do that where they say, you know, we want to train our people in Python uh, and rather than bring you in, we just want to buy your video course or even like combine it to do a blended learning sort of thing where the first set of four days will be online and the second, third and fourth days will be in person. So people do that and companies do that, um, but you still need to expect it to take a long time. Uh, I mentioned advertising, by the way, a bit earlier. I've had decent, not amazing, but decent success with Facebook ads. Typically, the people who come in with Facebook ads to my site and sign up for my free email courses and then get dumped onto my list, they tend not to be the most active. They tend not to be uh, the highest paying, but it's a way to get my name out. It's a way to sort of reach people who wouldn't have heard of me before. I definitely have had people who got to me through Facebook. There's no question about it. Um, what about other advertising? I've tried a little bit on LinkedIn. I've tried a little bit on Google. Nothing has really moved the needle that much, but you could, you could argue that I just am not doing it right. Uh, and I'm going to be looking into more how I can do better advertising and reach better people. Um, it, I can't guarantee that it's good, but I also can't guarantee that it's bad. Clearly, people are using various advertisements, you know, online advertising to reach out to people. 
Uh, I would definitely, as I said earlier, strongly, strongly, strongly recommend that you set up a mailing list. And the way that I've set it up actually has worked out very well because it means if I take a week or two off, my most, shall we say, loyal and oldest uh, subscribers don't get anything. So it's sort of not fair to them. But the rest, you know, the 95% of my list that's not at the end yet, they're doing just great and they're happy and they're blissfully unaware of the fact that I haven't written anything that had been lazy that week. Um, so I guess that concludes my whole B2B versus B2C discussion. Uh, I do want to also add a pick because, you know, it's not a freelancer show if we don't do picks. And my pick is Lab Rats by Dan Lyons. I just was talking to someone about this recently, so I don't think that I recommended it on this show. If I did, though, it's such a good book, you should read it twice. Um, and Dan Lyons wrote that I, I'm, I have this funny feeling that I did recommend it recently on the show. Anyway, I'm sorry if I did. Regardless, uh, Dan Lyons wrote this fantastic book a few years ago called Disrupted. And Disrupted was just amazing about working in a startup. And so he's written a new book uh, from a slightly different perspective, talking about how all the things that people do uh, uh, in companies nowadays is just like crazy. All sorts of human resources stuff and how companies are run and how it's really bad for the world, bad for companies, bad for the United States, and bad for the world as well. Um, yeah, I'm getting an increasingly strong feeling that I actually recommended this once before, but really it's one of the best books I've read in a long time. But you know what? Just in case I recommended it before, and even if I didn't, I am going to uh, recommend a second book. And that book, which I also registered recently, is called AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. And this book is by Kai-Fu Lee. So Kai-Fu Lee was born in Taiwan. He got educated in the United States. He then went back to China, to mainland China, and lived in Beijing, and he uh, set up a uh, venture capital fund um, after he had worked at Google, after he had worked at Microsoft. So he worked at a whole lot of, like he got his PhD at Carnegie Mellon. He's like clearly a very smart, very accomplished guy. Uh, and he, he, the book you can divide into a few different pieces. One is like, what is artificial intelligence? What is machine learning? You know, what does it mean? A second part is China business versus Silicon Valley, American business versus even to some degree European business. What are the differences? And how you should not um, poo-poo Chinese companies, right? Everyone likes to say, oh yes, you know, the Chinese companies, all they do is copy. And there is some truth to that, but it's far from the whole truth. And uh, there's a lot of innovation going on there in a variety of ways. As you know, I go to China quite a bit. Uh, and so I see there's a lot of innovation, a lot of copying, but a lot of innovation as well, especially as they're in their own sort of internet ecosystem. And so he spends a lot of time talking about the relative advantages that China has and that Silicon Valley has. And he's pretty convinced basically that China's just like steamroller over the rest of the world in terms of uh, business practices. I'm not totally convinced. I think there's some things there uh, that he's sort of over-enthusiastic about, but a fascinating, great book. And the last part is about how he had cancer uh, and he's still doing fine. But basically that forced him to rethink how much time he was spending at work and how much time he was spending or not spending with his children. And given that I read this on a plane to China after the previous month, being on a plane to Silicon Valley, after the previous month being on a plane to Switzerland, after the previous month being on a plane to uh, London and thinking about, hmm, I really should be spending more time with my three children, uh, especially as they're getting older. And you know what? As I'm getting older also. So it definitely made me think a bit more about, you know, am, am I a good father? Am I not a good father? Should I be spending more time? How much time am I spending? And so forth. So I definitely recommend this book as well. So two books that I'm recommending here, one that you might have heard of before, both of which you should definitely read, that they're fast, fascinating, even funny uh, books. Well, not the cancer part, that's typically not funny. But the rest of it was funny and interesting and very, very well written. All right, and with that, this concludes this solo edition of The Freelancer Show. 
I am Ruben Lerner. Um, I'll put in the show notes not just the links to these books uh, for my picks, but I'll also put in links to my own stuff. Uh, me, 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 right? So that you can sign up for my various things. And uh, I hope uh, that you will enjoy those. Thanks very much for joining us as always. And we will be back next time on The Freelancer Show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.